When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, what the? Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax, you booked a Verbo. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm John Lovett. And joining us as a guest co-host for the day is the host of the podcast, Why Is This Happening? And the Emmy award-winning host of All In with Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes. Hey, guys. I like the fact you led with the podcast. You know, oh, yeah. we're on a podcast. <laughs> it is an with my podcast. outstanding podcast, <laughs> Thanks, too. So I want, I want more people to it listen really to it. It really is. It makes um, you smarter. So we have a lot of news to cover today from uh, Trump backtracking on his decision to hold the G7 at Doral, to updates on impeachment, uh, to all the latest primary news, uh, and later we will have an excerpt of the interview that Tommy did with Susan Rice on Friday about yep. her new book. Ben and I, Ben Rhodes and I, spent some oh, time ben with Susan too, on Friday. You can hear part of it today and then the rest on Pod Save the World on Wednesday. Uh, love it. How was Love or Leave It? It was fantastic, John. Thanks for asking. Uh, we <laughs> had uh, Michaela Watkins and Moshe Kasher, who were oh, I love, so I love, fucking I love funny. Moshe Kasher so much. He's, they were both so his, funny. You know, his, back, his background is amazing. It's wild, yeah. It's, he's like orthodox. You know, yeah, no, I, like, we, we, we began the show by remarking about the, on the fact that the three of us were in Temple together. And, uh, uh, and then uh, we made a joke about something that happened in Temple, and then the Temple official Instagram messaged it to their <laughs> basically saying like we're everywhere you know we're everywhere and then also uh, john gonzalez seems a lot more chill than the catholic church <laughs> Fa- famously <laughs> famously temple's very chill yeah. and uh then we had john gonzalez from the ringer who uh walked me through the nba china fracas oh, did you do the 2.3 point foul shot thing too uh yeah no i, I went, went over all the details <laughs> about that primer. uh lebron's whole thing yeah, LeBron's yeah. <laughs> whole thing. You know, thing. some of my other favorite teams, the Spurs. <laughs> Spurs. Wow. Uh, Big Admiral uh, fan? Uh, uh, Knicks. Nice. Okay. Uh, finally, some, some big news from us on the podcast front. We can finally announce that Crooked Media has a brand new daily podcast, What a Day, which you'll be able to hear starting next Monday, October 28th, every morning, Monday through Friday, with new episodes available at 5 a.m. Eastern. Uh, our new hosts are comedian Akila Hughes and politics reporter Gideon Resnick, who will help break down the biggest news of the day, help you understand what matters and how you can fix it all in 15 minutes or less. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or go to crooked.com slash whataday. Nice. Very excited about this. That's a tough production schedule to get that out of 5 a.m. Eastern. Yeah, they're going to do it at night. Yeah. Overnight. And see, that's that West Coast my first, advantage. My first thought is like, what's the workflow there? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's, who's ours? That's, is that a 1 a.m. wake up? No. Yeah. Really before. good point, Chris. A lot of people are working very hard, some weird fucking hours, to bring you this awesome show. <laughs> yes, so exactly. subscribe. Yes, subscribe out of guilt. We've been listening to all the test pilots. They're fantastic. They're very funny. All right. Let's get to the news. Uh, About a month after the Ukraine scandal broke, the Washington Post's Phil Rucker summed up where we are in a piece headlined, Trump's season of weakness, that said the president, quote, whose paramount concern has long been showing strength, has entered the most challenging stretch of his term, weakened on virtually every front, 
in danger of being forced from office as the impeachment inquiry intensifies. So some people might see this and think, I've read a version of this before. I've read a version of this like a hundred times. A hundred times. Several hundred times before. Um, But then, you know, on Saturday, he backs off uh, his decision to basically give uh, a government bailout to his failing hotel (laughs) in Miami uh, by hosting the G7 there. And then you wonder... Is this time different? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, so I'm 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 torn on this as I think a lot of people are. I think that when the when the impeachment inquiry started around Ukraine, I felt like there was a little bit of people felt like the outcome was overdetermined. Like the the smart thing to think was like, well, the Senate will never remove him, mm. as if like the future is foreordained. And I've always thought that it's a more it's more dynamic than that. Like it is just not a fait accompli that this all goes like the impeachment in the House and they acquit in the Senate and then everyone moves on. Like that's not to me a fait accompli. At the same time, it is the case that I have read 200 articles about that. And, like, I look, his approval rating is basically the same. Like, what's happening right now in the polling is so fascinating to me, which is that the impeachment question is essentially approaching asymptotically the uh, approval question, where it's like there's literally no middle ground. So it's like, you know, 52-41 is his approval, and it's that's what, like— should he be impeached and removed from office? It's like there's no no one in the middle. It's like you either think the guy is a menace and needs to go tomorrow or you like him. And that's it. Those are the two positions. Yeah. Were you surprised by the Doral reversal? I was. I was surprised. Why do you think it happened? It's really interesting. I, I guess like, you know, stepping back, I am always pleasantly surprised when the old political rules apply to Donald Trump. Totally agree. Uh, Now, one thing that we have learned over the last three years is that the old political rules apply to a lot of people around Donald Trump. Uh, You you can ask uh, 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 various cabinet secretaries who've had to resign in disgrace. You could ask Mick Mulvaney, uh, who spent the weekend in a barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but it's been surprising at the the moments where uh, the political rules apply to Donald Trump. And this is an example where they do. And I think, uh, you know, it is true that we've read story after story where, you know, Donald Trump's season of weakness, you know, he's, uh, you know, the, the, the White House is uh, once again, you know, uh, unraveling. unraveling to the barricades, what have you. But but I think sometimes it's I think it's sometimes too cynical to say, oh, we've read this story before. Right. We have read this story before, but each time it gets a little bit worse for them. And this was a period of time where Donald Trump is acute. Well, I weak. can't I can't remember the last time he has backed off a decision that has been so heavily criticized. You know, I, the, 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 the thought I had was child separation, which yeah. was another one of those moments. I completely agree with you. We're like, oh, gravity exists. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. you're ripping children. You're kidnapping children. And the nation is just horrified by it. And you have to walk it back. And there was also a court suit, which sort of forced them to do it. Yep. But the reporting from The Times and The Washington Post both indicate that, like, there was this, you know, get together camp. David of moderate, so-called moderate Republican congressmen like the Tom Coles and your Peter Kings and those mm-hmm. folks who were like, no, yeah, no, we don't want to. What, we can't defend this. It's utterly indefensible. And like that was, and again, that's like, yes, it does matter. Like he understands he's about to get impeached. Like the political yeah. calculations here are have changed. Yeah, the galaxy brains that said he would uh, support impeachment and welcome it and see it as <laughs> politically beneficial are are not like you can't pile this many scandals on top of each other. And it does seem like a bunch of, of moderate senators said, you know. Esperanto, why don't you come to your senses? 
You know what I mean? <laughs> but here's the, here's Took the, you a minute. Particularly strong intervention from uh, uh, Senator Pierre Delecto. <laughs> <laughs> How fast can someone get a Pierre Delecto but, reference? But to, your point, to your point, Chris, there was an interesting uh, Twitter thread by Nate Cohn over the upshot where there is actually a little bit of a delta in swing districts between those who supported inquiry into President Trump or those who support impeaching and removing yeah. him. So, like, maybe he's still hoping for that yeah, little bit of Yeah, and there is, I mean, again, all the margins matter, as we learned in 2016 when it's 77,000 votes across three states out of you know 140 million votes cast so like the margins do matter but i i just think that like the the Doral thing is also just fascinating because mulvaney came out and it's like every defense of this guy revolves around two ways of defending one is like he literally can't control himself that that's the defense and then the other defense which is always given in this kind of like petulant aggrieved manner like why are you asking me these questions it's like marco rubio's like yes. real strength yeah is like sanctimony it's just what he like it's like he, it basically comes down, he cannot, in the same way that I can't speak Arabic, he can't understand the difference between right and wrong. Right. Like, you can, you can talk to me in Arabic all day long, and it, it will go nowhere. I don't speak Arabic. He doesn't understand. <laughs> yeah, like, there's, like there's, the no malin, there's no malintent here. Yes, that's literally... It's, the, it's, just, like, it's just Trump being it's Trump. It's just who he is. That's who he is. It, Does it, <laughs> do you think this increases the chances that Democrats will add... Um, some of this corruption and emolument clause violation stuff to the articles of impeachment. Because my thought was, now that they have backed off this, they have basically admitted that this kind of self-dealing is wrong. And yet there is so, there are so many other examples of him doing this. We just had the fucking Scotland controversy a couple yes. weeks ago, which we've, you know, Trump memory hold already. DC. Trump Hotel in D.C. How many times has he visited these properties? There was another story over the weekend about how he can't stop bragging to foreign leaders about his <laughs> hotel properties in private. I would say I, I actually I I don't know. I don't know what the right strategy is in terms of what how how narrow impeachment should be in terms of the specific crimes. I do believe that in terms of how they're described, they need to be described in the broadest possible terms of Trump's corruption and abuse of power. But what I do think we are, what is being validated is the theory of those who supported impeachment for a long time, which is, if you don't do this, he will be unbridled. Because imagine what would have happened if Trump announced that, that the G7 would have been at uh, Trump Doral while we were still in the kind of murky semi-impeachment world yeah, four months happened. ago. Nothing would have happened. So it is showing you that the lever of impeachment is actually making yes. a difference and making our society less corrupt. And it was actually, to me, like when they, I got, I was really taken aback by that Doral announcement precisely because it felt to me like, whoa, this is, this means these guys are just like, whatever we want to do. Yeah. And Doral is gross and to me clearly unconstitutional and criminal and corrupt. But then it's like, there's a lot of way worse things they could do if they just say to themselves, we're doing whatever we want to do. And I got this sort of like panic when I mm -hmm. saw this, like, and to me, it's, I completely agree with you that like the presence of the impeachment inquiry, to me, the strongest argument for impeachment was always that it is some kind of restraint on his behavior. Yeah. It, and and restraining him is a, a it's a, almost a kind of like collective social and political project for the well, entire country right now. Which, by the way, at the time was a hard argument to make yes. because making the argument that we will do something that will restrain Donald Trump is going to get you laughed at by people right. all across the political spectrum. Yeah, it creates a process <laughs> and a context through which you can actually do yep. it because if they're just if they have no shame and they're refusing all oversight, there's just no way to hold them to account. I just want to, on top of the emoluments issue, I just want to just note that it is insane to try to have a G7 in Miami, okay? <laughs> yeah, can you talk about- like... you're, you're securing seven of the most important world leaders on the planet. They have massive footprints, security. Sometimes, like, they do them at Camp David because it's it's 
entirely secure. They did it on Sea Island, so you could take over an entire island, island right. right? Like plopping a G7 down in Miami is it's impossible to do. It's insane. It's also it was so funny because it, what was so funny about that announcement, about the Mulvaney announcement was at one level it's like we're doing this and we don't care, but then at the other level he had to pretend there had been this like rigorous process mm-hmm. where it's like we looked high and we looked low and we looked east and we looked west and we oh, we, said, we said these teams and then it was like Miami in June. Miami yeah. in June is. I was like, what? That was, he was still doing <laughs> that defense. Saying? He was still doing that defense. Like even while saying they weren't going to do it, he was saying like, look, we we looked, and I I know it's kind of yeah, seems like persuaded. a coincidence, yeah. but it's the best place to have it. Famously, the hotel right near the airport yeah. is always. I also right. like that it was it was it was, yes, it exactly. was an, he was touting that, too. and also like yeah, <laughs> right that's, near the airport. It's the only one, by the way. It, it's a like lot the of Hilton Garden and this. You can't find a hotel near the airport other than Trump Tural. But the other the other piece of it too is I like that it was um uh, the ball was in the air long enough for Marco Rubio to catch it, yes, you know, yes. and defend it, and then the the sort of like Marco. the Marco Rubio defense of like. Oh, you know, I'm strong on Syria, but I don't, you know, you're all angry at me for not uh, not uh, picking a fight on Dural, but I'm right on this other issue. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, man, what percentage of the time do you need to show integrity for us to be quiet? I will say the the, the, <laughs> the Trump second order excuse now about how, well, it was going to be free. I wasn't, it was going to do it at cost <laughs> or I was going to be free. Like, why do I need to do this? That's his argument, right? Which you can see some people being like, oh, well, that's interesting. But like... First of all, it was clearly a branding and marketing opportunity for this. Also, I don't trust him to tell me what that's Well, that's, the, cost. that's the they, yeah. There was a report that they were charging $18 for a glass of bourbon that cost $55 a bottle, right? At like the Trump he's Hotel, a grifting yeah. fuck. I, it's also, <laughs> I don't trust him on hard costs and I don't trust him on soft costs. But like, <laughs> to, to your point earlier, Levitt, like, I really do think that Mulvaney's appearance expedited the downfall of this thing because Trump like, has managed to stay at this same level of gravity. Mulvaney is prickly. He's disliked by a lot of people within the caucus. And when he goes out and says something stupid, they wanted nothing more than just to slap it. It also was a reminder to me because I, I feel torn about, you know, there's this kind of, oh, what happened to the presidential daily, you know, the, the press conference, you know, where the, the press secretary would come out. And there's yeah. this, and I, I'm ambivalent about that because it's like, it was a waste of all of our time, yeah. but there is a kind of transparency interest in doing it. That's the argument for it from a sort of First Amendment, like civics pr- uh, perspective. It was a reminder, like, there's a reason they don't come out every day. Yeah. I mean, get made <laughs> on what camera. the hell are, you know what I mean? So, like, the one time they send someone out to do what that press secretary person would do, which is, like, kind of defend indefensible decisions, mm-hmm. that's what happened. Like, no wonder they're not coming out. Well, yeah, that's why Trump does all of his press conferences, like, with uh, helicopter yeah. blades behind he's him. He's always like, he just I'm, like, I'm, sorry, oh, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I missed it, I gotta go. But I'm also, just gonna scream some crazy shit. He's also right that he's the only person who, who can, can do be, it. Who can do yes. it, be his spokesman, because... Uh, like you see in Mick Mulvaney's eyes, like the lingering part of him that used to feel not, shame, right, right. <laughs> Same, and you know, uh, uh, you know, Spicer felt shame. Huckabee Sanders did totally. not, yeah, um, which but, is why she was good, yeah. Which she yeah. was, and now this new person's like, I can't go out. There. Well, and, and I, I'll never forget the moment when we were talking about like when the rules of political, you know, normal politics apply and they apply to other people. There was a moment in the Tom Price scandal when that was blowing up, right? He was taking all those flights, and I remember he did. He had some event that he had to do that day. Oh yeah, and he's sort of walking off and getting chased with questions, and I saw in his eyes the human experience of shame. I was like, he's done. Yeah. Dead. <laughs> he, I, I just saw, I just saw shame in him. He's out. Abs- gotta, and like, gotta bury that deeper. My a day friend. or two later, yeah. he's, he's gone. Bury it's like, it if deeper. you feel that, you know who else was dead eyed this weekend? Just I, I sorry, I don't know we're moving on. It was Mike Pompeo? Oh. I've, ne- I've never, oh my God. I've never. If you ever want to see a human balloon deflate on air, it happened in this question that he got from uh, George Stephanopoulos. It was just I've it's never a great, seen great him. interview. By There's George. a pause in that, which is five a fantastic second pause. pause, followed by like a whimpering voice. 
It, well, sound, it sounded like that. There's a clip we always play, always play, which is um, uh, Paul Manafort talking about like whether they have relation to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I said. That's what we said. Obviously, what our position is. What we actually said. I said. I said. That's what I did say. Say. Classic of the genre. Um, <laughs> we do have the clip of Mick Mulvaney attempting and failing <laughs> to walk back his remarks uh, from the White House briefing room uh, on Chris Wallace's show on Fox on Sunday. So let's play that. Why? Here's my first question. Why did you say in that briefing that President Trump had ordered a quid pro quo, quid pro quo <laughs> that investigating the Democrats, that, that aid to Ukraine depended on investigating the Democrats? Why'd you say that? Again, that's not what I said. That's what people said that I said. Here's what I said. I'll say it again. Uh, and hopefully people will listen this time. There were two reasons that we held up the aid. Um, we've talked about this at some length. The first one was the, uh, the rampant corruption in Ukraine. Ukraine by the way, Chris, is so bad in Ukraine that in 2014, Congress passed a law uh, making it, uh, making us, uh, requiring us to make sure that corruption was moving in the right direction. So corruption's a big deal. Everybody knows it. The president was also concerned about whether or not other nations, specifically European nations, were helping with foreign aid to the Ukraine as well. We've talked about that uh, for, for, for quite a while now. I did then mention that in the past, the president had mentioned for me to time to time about the DNC server. He'd mentioned the DNC server to other people publicly. He even mentioned it to President President Zelensky in the phone call, but it wasn't connected to the aid. And that's where I think people got sidetracked this weekend at that press conference. Two reasons for holding back the aid. Uh, uh, let, me, let, me, let me pursue that, though. Sure. Because I believe that anyone listening to what you said in that briefing could come to only one conclusion. Let's play what you said. Sure. Did he also mention to me in the past the, 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 the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. Um, but that's it. And that's why we held up the money. This is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the, into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. You I mean, were asked specifically by Jonathan Carl was investigating Democrats. One of the conditions for holding up the aid was yeah. that part of the quid pro quo. And you said it happens all the time. Yeah, but go back and watch what I said before that. I don't know if you guys can cue it up or not. I guess my question is, what do we think Mick Mulvaney thought he was doing when he came out to the briefing and started talking about like, what was the strategy thought, in his head? <clears throat> well, there's two there's two things happening. One is that he got confused. They, they have they've oscillated between two messages. We didn't do it and we did it and it's fine. Yeah. And he just forgot which one they were on. Right. Like he and we, because because they Rick Perry did that the other day in an interview in the same sentence almost like this has been the like the call is perfect. And also it's a witch hunt, whatever. So he got confused between those two. He was trying to offer a plausible cover story. One thing I will say that drives me a little crazy because this is like it, this doesn't even crack the top 1000 of what's crazy here. It's statutorily the, the money. It's not theirs to uphold. Right, right. The money has been passed by Congress and signed by the president. You don't get to sit around and just be like, "Oh, we think they're too corrupt." Like that's not the way it worked. DOD actually did a legal analysis inside the Pentagon and found it was unlawful to do so. Like this idea that the premise here is whatever gets passed into law, we just sit around and decide like, are they corrupt or not? It's just bullshit. Two things. One. It seems like this whole thing could be solved if someone just explained the concept of the cloud to Trump and Rudy I was, Giuliani. Honestly, I was just going to say this. It's not a physical server, There's dude. no server. It's like Amazon <laughs> Web Services, right? So that's one. Do you know so how email works? Maybe a piece of it is in, in Ukraine. What do I know? Two, right, like Mulvaney's right, the quid pro quos are at the heart of diplomacy, but the quo has to be something valuable to the United States of America. I can't say, I'll give you uh, military right. aid in exchange 
campaigns for a million dollars. That is corrupting, as is the promise of dirt on Biden or future super right. PAC. Like it's it's just so like their their little linguistic games don't pass even a tiny bit of scrutiny. They they treat voters voters like they are stupid. Uh, yeah, I, I actually think I think like so. What I when I first saw the clip, I thought, oh, maybe they have a new strategy, which is to concede that he was doing. Uh, sort of political interference of some form, looking backwards. That what he was. Yes. That that, yes. that and that they were kind of they were seeking uh, uh, seeking a, a, a tiny bit of shelter in the last part of their of their kind of whatever <laughs> misinformation hut. Uh, that was okay. Yeah, there was a quid pro quo. Yeah, we can't deny that part of it anymore. But there was nothing about Biden moving right. forward. It was just about looking backwards. And I think what he fucked up is the way that he could have maybe gotten away with that and say, like, of course, there was a quid pro quo. We are our quid pro quo was con- corruption in Ukraine for the money. We're not giving you money unless you investigate corruption. And one example is the conspiracy theory Trump brings up. But he but he but he but he didn't wasn't able to kind of land the plane. Well, the other thing he's doing there, and I this is what they're moving towards, is the attorney general, William Barr, is running this investigation right. into the origins of the 2016, the Mueller investigation to try to see if everything's, you know, on the up and up to track down all the conspiracy theories. And because this has some air of legitimacy to it in their mind and in, in the press and some parts of the press, um, they keep going to that by saying, well, when he was talking about this, like they don't want to they don't want to mention what the server was or CrowdStrike because they know that's fucking nuts. Too nuts. But they want to just say, oh, this was part of the bar investigation, which was which then was ruined by the Justice Department. Exactly. Saying, we have no idea what he's talking that, that about. That was yeah. He got too specific because <laughs> he said like at one point he said cooperation. Too specific. He was like, that's it. And, and too I, loud and too specific. It was like a, a co- cooperation like with the Department of Justice is one of the things he says. And then DOJ is like. That's the first we've heard of it. Yeah, and I think it was Aisha Roscoe at NPR also pointed out at the briefing that if you're investigating the DNC in 2016, they're still a relevant entity in the 2020 election, right? Like, they're still your opponent. You're still investigating your political opponent. There were a bunch of stories saying, like, ugh, the White House, very unhappy with Mick Mulvaney. In a, in a lot of ways, he was probably on the way out. Jared Kushner deeply disappointed his performance, which, honestly, if I were Mick Mulvaney, I was like, you fuck you, you little turd. The idea that you could have gone out there and handled this. You have you disappeared because you're garbage. But I, I also think, like, they're, like, trying to act like Mick Mulvaney. He's just some guy. Like, Mick Mulvaney was the golden boy that they had run two agencies at once because he was one of still the old- is. Still yeah, is. Still is. He's the, still the head of the OMB. Uh, uh, right. Mulvaney was one of the people that they viewed as their serious adult that was willing to stick around and do Trump's bidding. And so they put him into everything. So the idea now that Mick Mulvaney is like, ah, you know, that classic Mick, this guy nobody likes is ridiculous. Well, apparently he got a round of applause at the uh, morning staff meeting this morning at the White House. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. Yeah. Round dead, of applause. Dead man people. walking. Yeah. It's like Green Mile or whatever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> round of applause. Way to go, Mick. How much strategic or political benefit do you guys think there is in the Mulvaney get over it defense we like you said there's two different strategies i think that's the only thing they have i mean it actually worries me because i think think, that's i think that's all they have a and i think it's also it's what trump's instincts are and i think his instincts on this are are probably better than the people around him in some weird way just because he has like that shamelessness that almost no one can replicate like the 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 problem is the facts are they've they've got locked into a situation where they admitted the crime. It's like the first I said, like the first page of the novel is like the crime is committed. and We know who did it. And then the novel's told in flashback of like, <laughs> oh, well, how do we end up with this like at the crime scene? And so 
they're in this weird place where they're they're trying to kind of deny things and to keep coming out. We keep seeing how big and expansive this entire effort was. The, the only thing they will end up being able to do and what the Republicans will take shelter in is it was inappropriate but not impeachable. Yeah. Or like the, the, the Rob Portman statement is the, the, the way to sort of thread the needle if you're a Republican, particularly in the Senate and not in a crazily plus 25 Trump state, is to say this was not appropriate, but the money did flow. They didn't actually dig up dirt on Biden's and everyone learned their lesson and it's not impeachable. The problem is if you say that, you incur Trump's wrath. Right. So they're they're sort of stuck because the smart thing, I think, the argument to make is just sip like concede the facts. <laughs> All right? I think it's all stipulate the, the, the facts of the facts and the behaviors of behavior and then argue over in the same way that Democrats did with Bill Clinton, a very different infraction. But the, the argument with Bill Clinton wasn't it was awesome and perfect that he had this relationship with an intern. It was this was not cool, but not impeachable, which I think is an argument for the Democrats to broaden the impeachment inquiry to various impeachable offenses by Donald Trump, because I do think part of what's hurting him here as we saw the last couple of weeks with Ukraine and then Syria and then Dural is the continuing development of these events over and over yep. again of Trump's wrongdoing. You have to prove a pattern here. Yep. And I do think like the Tommy, you were mentioned um, Nate Cohn and the New York Times polling in these uh, six swing states. And one of the numbers that sort of gave me pause was I think 46 percent of people said they believed this kind of what Trump did with Ukraine was bad, but it's the kind of thing politicians yep, do all yep, the yep. time. And 42 percent said, no, no, it was uniquely bad. And I think there's a danger that people could fold this into people who are very cynical about yes. politicians in both parties in general saying, yeah, it's bad, but everyone's corrupt Everyone and he's it. our corrupt guy. And that's that. I also just think another difference. It's funny. Look back at the Clinton impeachment is one thing that Democrats had that that Republicans don't is uh, uh, Bill Clinton had some really inappropriate conduct that wasn't criminal and then obstruction and perjury to kind of cover up that misconduct right. that 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 no, that you know to varying degrees everybody uh, said was wrong but there was no crime with Trump the the underlying conduct is criminal yep. and incredibly right. dangerous yes. and then the cover up <laughs> yeah. is also yes. a process right. crime to keep that concealed yep. which is makes it much harder for them to go back to the kind of clintonian yeah. avoidance to, to chris's point on trump's insects i think that's exactly right because his starting place is I'm corrupt, you're corrupt, we're all corrupt, who gives a fuck, yeah. right? Yes. But he is, I think, struggling in part because he's staffed by the D team that is overworked, that are not being replaced. And so, like, they released the Ukraine transcript. They released a letter from Trump to Erdogan that made him sound functionally illiterate. They released a Nancy Pelosi photo that will be hung at her memorial service <laughs> in her home, in her speaker library, right? It's like their political instincts yeah. are off right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I, he I mean, and that's why he is. I mean, he the, every time a surrogate gets sent out, like he's the only one who can do this. He's the only one who can pull it off because he's the only one. Again, it's it's it shame. Is, it's it's not. It's like it's biologic. It's constitutive who he is. It's like there's no other place in his mind that thinks that like everyone isn't as corrupt as yep. him. Like he yep. and so he can pull it off in a way that almost no one else can. So final question on this, you know. Mulvaney's comments caused Republican Congressman Frank Rooney to say he won't rule out impeaching Trump. Uh, he then later announced he's going to be retiring. Uh, John Kasich called for impeachment. McConnell's out there writing an op-ed, uh, very critical of Trump on Syria. Uh, Pierre Delecto, uh, formerly known as Mitt Romney, has been obviously heavily critical. Um, CNN reported over the weekend that many Republicans they talked to have used the phrase turning point. Uh, these are Republicans they talked to to talk about what's going on right now. Do we buy this, or is this just like... <laughs> 
I think we don't know, but to go back to something Chris said earlier and something that I kind of I've thought for a long time, it was, I think, too cynical for a lot of Democrats to say, I know what Republicans will do. I'm from the future. I can predict how all this will end out and I end up. And I think one thing that is just generally important for our posture is don't do the Republicans work for them. Uh, let's be surprised yeah, right. by what they do. Well, yeah, and let, right. let's not sit back. I think it shows that like political pressure works here. There, there's also the fact that, you know, in this whole mix, because you just mentioned it, is that in the Syria policy is I've just found it so fascinating because to me, it's like it's so revealing with someone like Lindsey Graham. It's like, oh, this is your project. Like Lindsey Graham's project is maintaining a certain form of American military hegemony throughout the world, particularly the Middle East. And he believes in that project with his very fiber of his being. And that project is being betrayed before his eyes. And he is genuinely pissed about that. And a lot of other Republicans are. I think like some, I think for legitimate reasons, like we're betraying this ally that fought side by side with their soldiers. And I think some for illegitimate reasons, the Lynn Cheney's of the world who see this as a sort of American retreat and we're pulling out. But to the extent that doubts begin to be sown in the minds of Republicans about what this individual with this baggage and this judgment and this staff is doing with the American ship of state <laughs> in in this sort of grand sense, that to me is extremely worrisome and dangerous for them politically. Yeah. I sadly believe that a lot of voters uh, don't care that much about foreign policy. And they're probably the rank and file people in the world don't know much about the Kurds and aren't as worried as we wish they were about what Trump's doing in Syria right now. But what Syria was, was the first moment a Fox only viewer saw criticism of Trump that was real and sustained and personal. Yes. And from voices that they were like, wait, 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 I thought he was our team. Yeah. And I think that matters. Yeah. That matters a lot. And that's where I think the Trump weakened story in the Post was great and smart. But they said at one point that he lost the media. And I just don't think that's true. It's, you know, we the Trump media. There's a there's a dirty deal that the Republicans have made, which is we'll tolerate all of these abuses. We'll tolerate his inhumanity and vulgarity and criminal abuses and deception and racism as long as we get our list of things. And. Uh, for a lot of these Republicans, yeah, that's tax taxes and deregulation. Yeah, that's judges. But there's a there's a there's a foreign policy yes. uh, code like a shibboleth for them that this violates. And I think like okay, let's say Trump was a Trump was a, a, a Democrat who was just as corrupt, and but he campaigned on Medicare for all, and he campaigned on cutting taxes for the middle class, and he campaigned on all the things we believe in. Then he comes into office and he starts denying climate change. You know, right. and all right. of a sudden it's like, hold on a second, man. Hold on a second. Yeah, I'm I'll 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 I'm on the take here, but I need my fucking cut. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not going to be well, corrupt and not yes. get my beak wet. Yes. The other thing is, at the end of the day, every one of these Republican senators is going to make a, you know, purely political calculation in a way. Right. Which is is the public pressure on Trump. They're going to look at the polls. They're going to look at the polls in their state. If they're up for election, at least the ones who but aren't retiring. The, the problem with that, I mean, that I totally agree with. But the problem is if you if you ask me, and I'm not a political consultant, and I don't think I'd be a particularly good one, but if, if, if you ask me in an alternate universe in which I was like paid for advice to Republicans, I would say the Benjamin Franklin quote during the revolution, we, sh- we, sh- we almost hang together or we will surely hang separately, yeah. is true. Like, you will, in the short term, it would be a political disaster to vote to remove, for the Republican Party to vote to remove Donald Trump. Now, the second thing I would say is, Watergate was a disaster, and you know, seventy six was seventy four and seventy six were disasters, and then it was like Ronald Reagan yeah. four years later. Like nothing lasts forever, and there's an argument to be made to like you need a cleanse. To, exactly, no, really, <laughs> yeah. that, like there's an argument to be made to to just take take your medicine and cleanse. But in the short term, I don't think I don't see any argument on the other side. Purely a moral, just 
talking about political strategy here, that turning against Trump would be anything other than a just like extinction level event for Republicans. Yeah. The only thing I wonder is when you see that Joni Ernst town hall and how like yeah. how difficult it is for some of these Republicans when confronted by non-Trump media reporters or constituents to defend this. Like, does that figure into the calculus of a Susan Collins, a Joni Ernst, Cory Gardner, Martha McSally, some of these Republicans that are up in 20. Now, I don't know if you can, you need to get to 20 Republicans that, there, and I don't thing. know if and you I, can count to 20. And, and I think there's a universe, I mean, it's that's a fascinating, like, micro version of the political question, and that is, I think, a really hard call. Like, if you're paid to advise them how to vote on this trial, like, that's a tough vote. First of all, we can all agree, it's a vote they don't want to take. Yeah. Like, they do not want to take Absolutely that vote. Not. But that's a tough vote. Like, if you're Cory Gardner, like, What's the upside? What's the downside? If you, you know, like you, 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 the people that you need to turn out for you are going to be furious at you and probably view you as a traitor, but also you're in a state that is, you know, he's underwater. You can't win with your base. Let me, let me rephrase the question. Think about this question. Okay. So hang together, hang separately. Fine. If all the Republicans removed him, they would be protecting themselves. If all yeah. the Republicans vote to not remove him, they're protecting themselves. What would you rather be? Would you rather be a Republican senator who voted to remove and he stays in office? Or would you rather be a Republican senator that voted for him to stay while he's removed anyway? Oh, definitely the former. Yeah. You don't want you don't want over a vote. No, yeah, definitely the former. Yeah. So yeah. that tells you something. Yeah. Although again, like part of part of what's so weird about the way our politics work now, in just in terms of like how deep the sort of structural polarization is, is like we're talking about two different universes of people. You know, if you're a senator from Alabama, like None of this. this isn't you're hard. just. You're, it's not a hard one. You're just dealing in a different universe if you're Richard Shelby than if you're Cory Gardner. And like the the worlds in which like this sort of question at the at the margins in the middle like apply is such a narrow set of people, particularly in the House, where all of those people are Democrats now. I mean, the the forty seats that are those kind of seats, most of them are now occupied by Democrats making these judgments. There's maybe another ten marginal seats there, but. Everyone else is just living in a world where, like, this stuff is just... There's collective and individual breaking points. And I don't think that there will ever be a collective breaking point as a party where they decide that politically it's beneficial for us to get rid of Trump, even though I think you could probably argue that a cleanse at this point is is needed. But for individuals, there's Cory Gardner, right? He's looking at polling. But to your point about Lindsey Graham and his, like, global military project... uh, Today, the Trump administration announced that they had secretly brought 2,000 U.S. service members out of Afghanistan. That's an interesting thumb in the eye of Lindsey Graham in this moment of maximum tension with him around Syria. There's also this amazing little human drama that's happening, which is a Gulf War between Rand Paul and Lindsey Graham. (laughs) Like, no, you can literally see it. Like, they they have both invested so hard in flattering this guy into getting what they want. And Ted Cruz, when I spoke to Ted Cruz recently, the first thing he said, he had said this to me once before, and then he said it again. He said, look, he's not a complicated guy. If you flatter him, you can get him to do what you want, and if you criticize him, he hates you. And he just said that. I was like, right, this is the, the... and so you've got Rand Paul and Lindsey Graham who have both just been like, you know, just yeah. throwing themselves at Donald Trump, golfing with him to get him to buy their vision of American foreign policy. And like now Rand Paul's winning and he's like these sort of celebratory treats and poor Lindsey Graham all his golf is for naught. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's very slippery to try to, to, try to nail down Trump on Well, that. that's the thing. I mean, yeah. but I do think like one political benefit of impeachment, you know, we, we may not get him removed, but I do think all of these senators who are up in 2020 in these purplish states, their plan has always been to try to distance themselves from Trump at some point in the general election to show some kind of independence. And if they have to vote on impeachment and they vote to uh, they vote to exonerate him, 
then they're never going to be able to separate nope. themselves from Trump. No, and I it. think it's going to make life, even if he stays in office, it's going to make life much harder for Susan Collins and Cory Gardner and all of them. And, yeah. if that's, and, if that's, and if that's all we get from impeachment, then that is very much worth it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, when you, when you think through the sort of psychology, when you game it out, you keep gaming it out, right? It's like, so what's Trump, what, what's, gonna, what's the Republican Party going to do with Cory Gardner? In Colorado, like you can't send Donald Trump to Colorado. Nope. <laughs> to, to like, like you know, it's not the Texas alone. He can't handle it. He's probably not going to Maine. He's probably not. I mean, no, I don't think he's going to Maine either. So it's like, again, that yeah, the base only gets you so far, and for the people for who that doesn't carry the day, they're not in great. They're in yeah. a bad position. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I. uh... You know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to good. another time because uh, it turns out talking- that's going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash PSA. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, All right, let's talk about the Democratic primary. Big news this morning is a new Suffolk USA Today poll out of Iowa that shows Biden at 18 percent, Warren at 17 percent, and Pete Buttigieg surging seven points since their June poll to 13 percent. Bernie Sanders is at 9 percent. Everyone else is between zero and three percent. And the winner is undecided at 29 percent. So only one poll. Uh, but we do know that Iowa polls in general have been better for Buttigieg than the national polls. We have seen a slight bump for him in several polls since the debate. What do we think accounts for the surge here for Pete? Um, obviously, he's been spending a lot of time uh, in the debate and since the debate, uh, is, you know, drawing contrast with Elizabeth Warren on Medicare I, for All. I, I think, you know, it has always seemed to me the case that, um, and I think the, like, the lane metaphor really collapsed and didn't work in 2016, but it does seem to me that, like, 
Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both have, you know, both have strong ideological stories. They both clearly believe them down to their toes. Like mm-hmm. that, that, you know, like they, they believe in what they're saying and they have a vision for the project. There, so there's those two at the top. And then there's Joe Biden, who is Joe Biden. Right. Right. Like that, that is why Joe Biden is Joe Biden. You know him, you love him or you don't love him. He was Obama's vice president. He has a clear story, whether he's articulated that story or not. Yes, that. So those, those, and that, and that, that gives you the top three. There's always been a question of like, who is telling a story? The primary field, a story, a vision, a kind of camp of like, I'm the person who's not, ha, does not have this ideological vision that these two others have, which maybe mm-hmm. some people in the primary, you know, grassroots don't like. But I do have another vision, and I could be a kind of like essentially a non-Biden centrist to over, be overly reductive. And I think there is clearly a space for that in the race. And it just seems to me that Buttigieg is like that in in a, in a sort of remarkably abrupt way. Well, that, that was, <laughs> it's like just that was what I was going to get to. Just be like, like just yeah. like swerve the car over uh, to, to do that. But from a tactical perspective, it makes us... Blow, <laughs> just blowing up a blow-up doll so we can use the HOV lane. Swerving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using this lane whether you fucking like it yeah, or not. Yeah. I guess so. That that I think is what accounts. You know, and that's what I think. And he's a pretty good retail politician. I think. That's yeah. Oh, I for think. sure. I guess that's my question, and it's been my question since the debate: is is it too abrupt? And maybe the answer from this poll is no. It's not too abrupt because he's he's getting some traction. I just think that this surge has actually been a long time coming. Yeah, and that's it's just, the other. It's showing up in multiple polls now. I mean, when I was in Iowa in August, like he had a pretty big crowd for a Tuesday afternoon yeah. at the state fair bigger than others and people were sort of noticing he he got hot early right and like who the fuck thought that a cnn town hall super early on was going to lead to sustained momentum and money over uh, time it was the dan pfeiffer interview on the, sorry the dan pfeiffer interview <laughs> cut that just kidding the dan pfeiffer interview was going to lead to all this money but like you know they they have been building and organizing and they've been on tv in iowa and it's actually mattered and he's been in the national mix the, through the duration, which has been, I think, a reason that people like Amy Klobuchar and, and Cory Booker and Beto O'Rourke have had a harder time. I'm just I'm, uh, two things I want to say here. One is that it, you know the race part of this is a huge part of it too. Like, why is he doing? He he's at zero with black voters, and right. so like I was a place that he can perform. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yep. like, unless that changes, he's not going anywhere. Yep, right. The second thing I would say is that. It just seems to me, and again, I'm like sort of talking about this not in terms of my own ideological commitments, but just sort of a descriptive sense. It's like if you're looking for like who would be a person who's not Sanders and Warren because I think they're too far left or whatever and who isn't Biden, who I think doesn't seem like he's at his sharpest. Like Amy Klobuchar is a United States senator. She in terms of an electability argument, just looking at the numbers, probably has the best argument in the field, just in terms of how she performs in Minnesota, mm-hmm. the Republican districts in which she overperforms in. She overperforms in, in rural parts of that state. I don't think anyone's like right now getting like super fired up about Amy Klobuchar the way that there are some people about, you know, Pete Buttigieg. But let's keep in mind, Pete Buttigieg won his last election in a race in which there were 10,000 votes cast. Right. I mean, that's like a large housing development in the Bronx where I grow up. Like, like well, Amy Klobuchar has won in a state that, remember, Hillary Clinton only won by 10,000 votes last time around. That's a competitive state. Like, I just feel like on the numbers and the metrics, if you're making the tactical argument about this sort of like centrism combined with mm-hmm. electability, she's got a stronger case just in the data than he does. Well, it's also why I think Pete is leaning so heavily on this Medicare for all argument to draw a contrast with Warren because he can't really get into an electability argument with Elizabeth Warren because for the reasons you right. just mentioned. But what he can do is present himself policy-wise yeah. as the more centrist alternative. 
The difficult part, of course, as he found out over the last week, is he sort of burst onto the scene as much more of a progressive yes. truth teller, even though it was sort of, I mean, in fairness to Pete, he he's been talking space. about yes. Medicare for all who want it since February yeah. of 2019. Yeah. So it's it's been there. But he said things like, you know, I mean, uh, Jake Tapper on Sunday interviewed him and was like, well, you know, you criticized her about tax increases, but you've said to me at a debate in the second debate, premiums or taxes, it's the same thing. Right. <laughs> right. So I wonder how much of a hard time he's going to have you know, I think we're also look, we're we're in it and we've seen all these sort of adjustments along the way. But I also think it's worth remembering, too, that I think Pete uh, became a national figure by offering a non ideological idea of what he was trying to do. Right. Yes. It was a generational shift. It was what he represented. And he leaned heavily on democratic reforms, yes. right? Like the Supreme Court and the yeah. filibuster, which are also in a way non ideological. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're they're big progressive ideas, but they're not on the kind of, you know, left, right, how much do we tax, how much do yeah. we spend hinge. Yeah. Uh, and I think so he's sort of, sh- he's he's uh, now made some really s- specific statements that put him more in the sort of center left of the party, uh, despite what he said in the past. And the other piece of this about Klobuchar too, is I do think it doesn't speak to what Pete has been doing. It kind of speaks more to what Amy Klobuchar wasn't doing. I think this fourth debate was the first time she really was strong in a way that was sort of made a case for her own candidacy. She was, uh, I thought, uh, energetic and, and 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 emotional in defense of her worldview, which she hadn't done before. And, you know, I think that's partly why she hasn't been able to kind of yeah. get a toehold into the, into the polling. I think it's also hard, though, like making... The reason that Biden is sort of uniquely... It, it's still the case that the squishiness of what Mayor Pete was talking about, and I agree that it wasn't ideological per se, but it was like big at the same time, that the problem for people that want to occupy that space is like how to make an argument that feels big that isn't big in an ideological sense. Because otherwise, then you're just John Delaney getting his butt kicked by Elizabeth Warren. You never want to be the wet blanket. You don't want to be the wet blanket. And you also don't want to be like, yeah, we can make these little marginal reforms and we can do things at the edges and like better things aren't possible, you know, the tweet. (laughs) And like that is a real challenge. It's a real challenge. And no one, I think, no one yet has figured out how how to do that, how to sort of paint a narrative that feels big and and, um, rises to the scale of the issues that we all see in front of us and sort of fills up the scope of the times that's independent from an ideological vision that Sanders and Warren have a very clear well message about. for example like Obama in 2008 in that primary the, right like there were the issues, classic example the classic example because on health care in that primary Barack Obama was further to the right yes. than Hillary Clinton or John Edwards and yet he was seen as although the thing <laughs> I will say about that and you guys lived it but but I I covered it is that like the war did so much of that work. That's exactly that it right. It just did exactly. all that work because it was like that was the number one issue for so long in politics and he was on the right side of it and yep. the person he was running against yep. the wrong and he was on the left side of it and that did so much of the work that Pete doesn't have a thing like that That's or exactly Clark right. to, to point to. Yeah, I mean, I think that like when you look at the distinction between Klobuchar and Pete, I think a lot of it could be boiled down to the fact that Pete broke through into the national conversation early, and he has a set of qualities that's particularly appealing to the donor class yes. and to people who are really interested in talking about and diagnosing the challenges in our politics in the Democratic Party. Whereas, which Klobuchar, is why he has so much money too. Where, why he <laughs> yes. raises a lot of money? Whereas Klobuchar went a more they had a harder time until the. I think she had a great debate recently, a harder time breaking through nationally and was doing the more traditional grind it out in the early states 
uh, strategy, which frankly hasn't worked for anyone this time yet. She also was, I think, more, she was stronger and more critical of, she was better at making a sharper contrast with her opponents when she was off the debate stage than when she was on it. She was yeah. reluctant to kind of throw a punch in the debates. And you know, we can talk endlessly about whether throwing punches is always a good idea. But for her specifically, it was like, come on, you're the, there's, we have seen uh, center-left candidate <laughs> just fall by the wayside, just getting absolutely brutalized by Elizabeth Warren. And I think this was the first <laughs> debate, and Bernie Sanders, this was the first debate where you act like Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar are, are more sophisticated uh, uh, debaters than what uh, the left has faced before. And I think the debate was stronger because of it. Right. Yes, I totally agree with that. I mean, that the, rather than the like, the Delaney yeah. sort of yeah. stand in. But I also think, I mean, and this I think this is a more ideological question, but I also think it's the case that like there's a reason it's hard to spell out this vision that feels equal to the scope of the times that's not ideological because politics is about what the ideological vision is for the country. Like, yeah. there is a reason that the, the Sanders-Warren vision feels big. It's because it is big, because yep. they they believe that, like, a lot of shit is fucked up. <laughs> and, like, a lot correct, of shit is... Like, they, and if correctly, they speak to the right. scale of the yes, challenges. Exactly. Well, and if you don't agree with them, the only way around that is to... is through it. Like, <laughs> right. you, you have to make the case that that's not either politically feasible right. or from a policy, substantive standpoint, it's not the right way. Right. But it, so many candidates, I think, have danced around it yeah. because they're afraid um, of the criticism. And so I think, you know, Pete's sort of head down charging into the fray. And, and I think, again, I think that, like, I, I, I have tended to feel like most of the debates so far have largely revolved around, like, what I would call, like, clean hits. Like, like, like substantive fights about things that people have. A, like, you know, there's a big difference between universal single-payer health care as yeah. proposed or, like, adding a public option. Those are distinct yeah. things that people can make good-faith arguments, substantive arguments. The one thing I will say, not to get too policy-y here, but, like, there's a little bit of hand-waving that's happening with the public option or Medicare for all who want it, and, and Dave Dayan at the prospect pointed this out, which is, like, so there's two possibilities. I know. I know. <laughs> Either it's a really good option that people want, in which case a ton of people are in it, and then you're dealing with a cost that looks a lot like Medicare for all, or it's kind of crappy and no one, well, no one wants it. And then you could be like, well, we don't have to spend a lot of money on it. But it's like, well, what have you succeeded in doing then? So David Remnick <laughs> pressed Buttigieg on this point in an interview they did, I think, over the weekend. And I think the way that Pete thinks he's getting out of that is because there are still premiums, co-pays, deductibles, and Medicare for all. You have to yes. buy. It's yeah. not like automatic enrollment and everyone gets, you sure. know, it's not like Bernie's It, it costs less than in. Bernie's, Sanders, even Apple's. Even apples. if everyone's yes, in. But you're right that if everyone loves Medicare for all who want it and everyone jumps in, they're going to have to find a yes, financing exactly. mechanism that is greater than what Pete has already proposed. Yes. Right. And actually, it also gets at the argument Pete's trying to make against Warren, because what does that mean? Well, it means that the government is going to have to spend a greater share <laughs> on health care as the amount people spend out of pocket on things like right. premiums slowly starts to right. fall, which is the ledger math that we've argued about exactly. in every single debate. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Okay, so another big development over the weekend was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's endorsement of Bernie Sanders at a rally in Queens that drew approximately 26,000 people. In her endorsement video, AOC said, this is not just about running for president, this is about creating a mass movement of working class people. How big of a deal is this endorsement? I thought, I, I, don't, I don't know how much endorsements matter, and I don't think it was necessarily that surprising. I do think that, like, I do think there was a little bit of, after, Bernie Sanders, 78-year-old man who had a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think there was a little bit, and I think you saw it in the polling, of like, oof, uh, is he going to be cool? Like, just physically, like, not, not a 
politics, substance, just like literally physically. And I do think it was important for him, like both to have a very strong debate performance where he seemed energetic and not like a man who's like weak and just out of the hospital. And then to have this rally, like to remind people like, yes, he's in it. He's there. And the other thing I'll say is I just thought the ending of that speech was so moving and beautiful. Very powerful. Like really powerful. Like it just like really I was like, right, this is the project. The project is like look around and find someone that isn't like you. And like, are you willing to fight for them? And are we all willing to fight for each other? And I just thought it was like a very beautiful piece of rhetoric that captured what I want the well, project to be for all of us. <laughs> it was inclusive. Yeah. It was inviting of other people to yeah. try to build a movement, which I think I think Bernie has always been pretty good at. I think sometimes his supporters yes. are not as inviting. Yes, exactly. No, <laughs> Some of his supporters, it, I'd say yeah, yeah. a lot of people who work for him are different, right? right. But like, yes. so, you know, the online conversation. Yeah. And when you hear him talk like that, and then I thought AOC's endorsement videos was one of the best endorsements I've seen. She's incredibly powerful. She's so good at this. So they... they that's I feel like the case he made and the case that she made is the best case for Bernie yes, Sanders. Yes, it's like that's go with there. that exactly. Yeah. I completely agree. Go with that. I think this will actually turn out to be it. like I normally would agree that endorsements don't mean much, but I think this is a big deal and it will mean more over time because, like, she, obviously she helped him draw this huge crowd in Queens and she did an incredibly compelling video that I thought made a better case for Bernie Sanders than Bernie Sanders off, often makes for Bernie Sanders. But then, like, she's a campaign staffer as of, like, a, a year ago, right? Like, right. she will, she knows how this works. She will hit the road. She'll work for him. And she will draw huge crowds yeah. everywhere she goes. And the one question I had as I looked at the event was, why do this in Queens? Why not do this in Des Moines? Right. And I talked to some some of Bernie's folks, and their argument was basically, like, one, we kind of give endorsers uh, the respect of coming to them first. Yeah. Yeah. So don't be surprised if you see her in, uh, you know, in Des Moines down the road. But also, like, they're, they're, the national narrative, as you said, Chris, has changed a lot over three weeks. It's a, kind of an amazing whipsaw for them. But they think that the way you show that you're the biggest, baddest grassroots campaign in town is to pull off an event like that. And I certainly, like, I, that was a brushback pitch to the Warren campaign, to everyone yes. else that's trying to say, you know, this is a movement. And I will say that Warren, it, it also doesn't hurt to do something in the, the, the national media's backyard. Like, the yes. Warren event in, uh, in, in Washington Square Park did that very well. It was like, oh my goodness, like it's right there. You can't ignore it. I, I will also say, I mean, the funny thing about Western Queens at this point is that like, it's the beating heart of like the revived democratic socialist movement in, in a real way. Like you can lose sight of it in the world of online and Twitter, but there are both in the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez campaign and then the campaign for the Queens DA, Tiffany Caban. My brother was a campaign manager on that. So I have some insight into it. Like there are just a bunch of people who are just non-political professionals who go knock on doors. Like, there's a real organization that has been built there. It's a remarkable thing. It's not just, like, a bunch of people in people's Twitter mentions. There are people that, like, get off their shift from work, and then they go hit doors for socialist candidates in, in, in that part of the borough and throughout the borough. And it's, like... In some ways, it's the, it, there's something being built there that's a very real thing hmm. that makes sense to go to the heart of it. And I do wonder from this endorsement, you know, we just talked about Pete Surge, and now we've talked about sort of Bernie's sort of mini resurgence here. If the Warren campaign is about to go through sort of a, a challenging part of the race right now, that they haven't really been challenged like that since the, the beginning, beginning yeah. the very beginning. And we, you know, I think we talked about this for the last couple of weeks, like, what is it going to be like when Elizabeth Warren faces a real challenge? Because every candidate who does go on to win the nomination goes through that. Um, and so I'm sort of wondering now, in addition to what happened at the debate now, it, you know, for a while, it seemed like, 
oh, maybe Bernie's not going to be much of an issue. But he's he's there. He's got AOC. He can still pull off a 26,000-person event. Yeah. He is not going anywhere. No. That's, I think, the most important part of this. So it, in a, if, if AOC had endorsed Elizabeth Warren, it might have transformed the race, right? Yes, it would have right. shown Bernie yes. would have continued to lose support. It would have meant that the left was now rallying behind one candidate uh, to make sure that Joe Biden or someone in the Joe Biden lane, uh, you know, people who to judge just fucking tailgating Joe Biden, honking his horn, saying, get out of here. With his, blow, with his blow up doll. Get out of my lane. You get out of here. I'm fucking clear. You're driving uh, 40 miles an hour. You're driving 40 miles an hour while telling a story to no one. The, uh, but but uh, uh, this, I think, will allow Bernie Sanders to find whatever his pet maximum is, right? And I think that's been the question from the beginning. Is it... You know, what is the Bernie right. Sanders vote? What is the what is the Bernie Sanders vote absent yep. an anti-Hillary vote? Is it 25? Is it 30? Is it 35? And I think he's going to get to find out what that is because now he has this incredible and, kind of launching pad for a revive campaign. And here's the thing about the Sanders campaign. It's always struck me that it's like it's self-testing. Its theory of the case is actually like will be tested by the primary, right? Because the theory yeah. of the case is like there's lots of people that you can who are marginal or or disaffected and you can organize to bring them together to build a political coalition that's powerful. If you can like you can either do that or not in the primary. Yeah. <laughs> like right, yeah. like if you can do that, then that shows that you're correct and have something really remarkable and powerful. If you can't, then the theory doesn't work. Right. Well, that's yeah. exactly right. And I also sort of like, you know, there was a lot of why is AOC doing this? Why is she doing that? And then you watch the video and you listen to what she has to say and you realize like because Bernie Sanders seems to have meant a lot to her. Right. Right. And, and sometimes it's nothing more. She, she called Faz. <laughs> she called Bernie's campaign manager while Bernie was still in the hospital to say, I'm in. I'm ready to endorse. That's that's a pretty goddamn principled time to do it. Yeah. And I, and I do think. Yes. And I do think also I think part of the dynamic inside of this primary. I think it's true for some Warren supporters. I think it's true for Bernie supporters is you look at this political landscape and you say like. Can we have what we want? You know, yeah, is it right. possible? Is right. it possible to <laughs> right. like this time? Like we right. made the worst person in our country president. Politics <laughs> was upended. What if we can have a person that doesn't that we don't have to like hold our nose to vote yeah, for? Right. Like what if we can have the person of our dreams? And for, I think for a lot of people that's Bernie. I think a lot of people that's Warren. And I think for a lot of people are looking at this and, and wondering just what it, what does it mean in 2020 to choose a candidate? How much do we get a say, not as pundits, but as people who want something from politics? So that that brings us to. Tulsi Gabbard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we should yeah, we yeah. should we should briefly mention uh, what's going on with uh, with her and Hillary Clinton. In an interview on David Pluff's new podcast, Campaign HQ, Hillary said, "Quote: I'm not making any predictions, but I think the Russians have got their eye on somebody who is currently in the Democratic primary and John's, are grooming her." John's holding his hands over his eyes. That's <laughs> <laughs> sort of how I feel about this entire and, news. Cycle. I love that. I'm not making predictions, but here's something I think is going to happen: yeah. and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's a favorite of the Russians. Uh, she was not talking about Amy Klobuchar. No, she's talking about Marianne Williams. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so Tulsi Gabbard Spoiler. responded with quite a tweet. You, the queen of warmongers, embodiment of corruption and personification of the rot that has sickened the Democratic Party for so long, have finally come out from behind the curtain. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. It was such a journey following these three tweets because at first she's like attacking Hillary and then you're like, wait, she's challenging you to get in the race? I'm surprised there wasn't a duel. Uh, it it read is- like what you read to someone as someone lights the pyre on which they are about to burn. <laughs> <laughs> You, the queen of warmongering. 
I mean, was it a? Do you think it was a specific reference to Game of Thrones and Daenerys Targaryen? Because uh, it seemed very. Yeah. Uh, what? Why do we think? Let's start with Hillary. Why do we think Hillary said that? I listened to the podcast before it broke, and it's funny. It was. It took a little while because you know, Pluff's got this new podcast, and I was like, I was listening to it Wednesday on my drive home, and I'm like 25 minutes in, and she just casually drops this, and you hear Pluff just sort of sits there in silence, <laughs> doesn't say anything, and kind of just moves on to the next topic because I think Pluff's like, what What was that? You know. And then at the very end of the podcast, Pluff comes on himself and he's just like, so that was an interesting conversation with Hillary Clinton. I do think that bit about Tulsi Gabbard might make some news. <laughs> you think? I mean, I thought, I my thoughts on this are she shouldn't have said that. It's, a, it's just like, it's, you know, there's a certain part of the discourse that is obsessed with hating on people that talk about Russia. Yeah. Uh, But the kernel of the point they have is that it is insidious to the political culture of the country to view everything through the kind of like as like some marionette puppeteer issue that the it, it, it replays some of the most toxic insidious tropes of the Cold War and all that came with that. And like it's just not a good way to talk about our politics. I think the Tulsi Gabbard's politics are strange. Yeah indescribably strange in some ways. Like, I literally don't know the term. Very bad, I think. The way I view her as, I really view her as, like, the Ron Paul of the Democratic Party in in that you can't quite say what, like, what is the project as a whole is less well-defined for the Ron Paul, but also in the way that, like, Ron Paul was right about some things and really right about some things and horribly wrong about some other things. And that that was the Ron Paul contradiction. Like, that was always the case. Like, he was right about the Iraq War. That's a big thing to be right about. He was wrong about a lot of other things. And like, so so Gabbard's sort of political and ideological profile is her own and weird and distinct. I think the uh, I think the thing that Clinton said was bad and she shouldn't have said it. The response, though, is just like, again, what are you doing exactly here is is really what's at the root of this. Why are you going you on don't, Tucker Carlson to defend you do yourself? Not, <laughs> you are not comporting yourself as a person who is attempting to win a Democratic Party primary. You just are not. So... You're building your profile for your ideological movement. Fine. But what is that ideological movement aside from getting out of regime change wars, which again, not wars, regime change wars, which is always an interesting tell because she's for the global war on terror and she is for the use of the authorization to use military force in many spheres of combat in which we have, we're killing people like Somalia. Like she thinks that we should keep doing that. She's very specific about regime change wars. And it's like, I just don't get what the actual project you are trying to boost here is. Fully. I I don't either. And she's also, I mean, again, she was, you know, she's had some weird politics in that she was against the Iran deal. She was criticizing Obama for not saying radical Islamic terrorism. She was against uh, more uh, Muslim refugees coming to the country. She was like the lone Democratic vote against increasing the amount of Syrian refugees. There's plenty uh, on substance to criticize Tulsi Gabbard on, for sure. Yes. (laughs) I also just think, like, I, I personally find the constant, this is helping Putin... Twitter, you know, conversation to be exhausting. I also think, by the way, those people are ironically helping fucking Putin yes, by giving right. him credit for every bad thing that ever happens That's, in this country. Yes. Now, I don't think, like, what what has now been ascribed to Hillary Clinton that she called Tulsi some sort of secret agent for Putin is not at all what she said. No. Right? She said she thinks that the Russians would love a third-party spoiler in the race the way Jill Stein is. All, all of this, to me, just 
understandably boils down to a deep-seated anger about the 2016 election, what happened. And by the way, like, I think David Pluff would be the first one to tell you that you're not going to roll out big breaking news on his, like, third episode of his podcast at minute 35, right? Like, there there was some plan. No, 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 no. Now, Tulsi her campaign smartly was like oh fuck me fuck you i'm gonna lean into this and get the most press i've gotten but to your point chris about winning a democratic primary you don't delay your event with iowa caucus goers to go on tucker carlson right like that's not how you win win a democratic Democratic primary primary. and i i do think the larger conversation that pluff and clinton were having which was about the danger of a third party candidate in 2020 is is a, is a good yeah. conversation to have and it's something that but, is very scary. Right, but it's also self-defeating to phrase it in this way. I mean, oh, well, right, that, the point is that, like, there are people who are not Tulsi Gabbard, who yes. support Tulsi Gabbard, who are gettable Democratic Party votes that you want as part of the majority coalition to defeat Donald Trump. And, like, this is not a good way. Well, also, Hillary Clinton is incredibly smart, right? And even if she is very concerned that... um that the Russians or Russian bots or right-wingers or whoever it may be are boosting Tulsi Gabbard, right? Are boosting Jill Stein because they want the And it's true. There are weird-ass right-wingers it's hap- it's boosting very, she's Tulsi She's right about Gabbard. that, yeah. Like Richard Spencer, she Steve Bannon. Like, the problem is the word grooming, right? Because it's groom, like a weird it's term. a weird word. But, um, but I think if, you, if you're worried about that, one way that that's going to be more true is if you talk about it and yes, elevate it, yes. right? So even from just purely from a strategic yes, point of view, exactly. even if Hillary Clinton was exactly right in what she was saying, saying it and making news about it is now we're all living in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do. I do think though too. Like part of this is forgot twenty sixteen. I think there's so much anxiety about twenty twenty about how the primary is going to turn out, and you know. Tom Steyer gets the first applause of the night by saying any person on this stage would be a better president than Donald Trump. And I think, yeah, people are going to make, you know, Mayor Pete going after Elizabeth Warren on how she's going to pay for health care. It's uh, about Mayor Pete, right, doing something helpful for him that's hurtful to her, even if she's the nominee, let's say. right. But that's politics. That's what happens in a primary. They duke it out. They try to hurt each other. And the, the idea is everybody gets stronger along the way. But Tulsi Gabbard goes out there and threatens to quit the debate for reasons that are that kind of so strange. Weird. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, you know, that you, 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 you wonder, like, how far is she going to take her campaign? What are her interests? And I think I think there's a fear that Tulsi Gabbard's lack of any ideological kind of clarity that's confusing to people, her, her kind of reputation as a bit of a chaos candidate leads people to fear that this is someone who doesn't understand or isn't bought into the collective project of whatever happens in yes. is we have to do everything yes. we can to defeat and, Donald Trump and, together. And that is a, I think that's that is a completely legitimate fear. I mean, I think I think I don't know even if I, I've never had the chance to, to, to interview her since she started running. I've, I've talked to her a bunch before then. She was much more of a kind of like part of the Democratic Party previously. And she, I say and I say I'm sorry, I should say like I say that not know like I see I don't know, right? I just genuinely right. don't no, know. That's what I, I mean, like, like an it. honest good faith question of like, do what? you actually feel that way? Do you feel the way that Tom Sire felt? Do you feel that like right. the the Democratic nominee and the Democratic Party and the and the coalition that's represented by this, in your mind, very flawed, rotten and corrupt party, which okay, that that is the 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 only alternative to yeah. the continued menace of this of this person and also the ideological project of the Republican Party, which is menacing but, in its own right. Like that's obviously a thing that everyone I think shares hundred percent on that stage, and I think it's not an, a crazy thing to ask if that is her 
current position. There's also just a weird thing this time around where the DNC rules that allow you to get on the debate stage mean that support is support for some of these guys. Right? Andrew Yang dealt with this early on, that he yes, had some support right. from like the 4chan, yeah. Joe Rogan world. And he was constantly asked to disavow these individuals. And he, to his credit, he did. But does anyone think that those people kind of liking universal basic income or some interview he did made him a bad guy or an no. extremist? No. 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 So it's like it's very hard. Just like putting my like I'm a Tulsi staffer hat on. If you're constantly asked to denounce yes. the people that are giving you TV airtime or saying nice things about you, of course, at some point you're going to you're going to balk at that. The thing I will say, though, about Yang, and I think it's interesting to compare the two because they're both both of them are people that are in a Democratic primary that are carving out a space, I think, in their rhetoric, their ideological vision and their support that is different than a standard Democratic candidate, quite different, right? Is that it just seems to me that like Yang has his posture is like additive and coalitional building as just like a rhetorical posture and as a personal posture in a way that it doesn't feel like Gabbard's is. No. Gabbard's feels like like process of elimination and like who the sort of like, and then partly that's populist rhetoric and who the kind of corrupt insiders are. But Yang strikes me as someone who really is like, trying to build something, trying to additively right. build something out in the Democratic Party that right. speaks to a part of the Democratic Party. and I, it, Friendly to the other candidates. Yeah. Yeah. Tulsi right. in that moment was trying to go after Elizabeth Warren for supposedly supporting wars in the Middle East. And, right. and Warren Which, actually again, is made a, f- a bit of a flub. She said, yeah, I'd get all troops out of the Middle East. Obviously, she meant in Syria, combat. but yeah. it got yeah. you know changed to mean all these various and again, permanent that's a, bases that's a fair Again, that's, that's a, a totally debate. fair and good debate. And like her playing that role is, is good. It's just that like, I don't, I just can never quite, and maybe there's not an answer to it, and it doesn't matter that like there has to be some box and label that's wrapped around the whole project of Gabbardism. But like I just, when you look at the policies, you look where she's been on a variety of things. It is just very hard for me to just figure out what the project is. Yeah. Uh, so before we go, I want to talk about your outstanding podcast. Why is this happening? Um, and you have a live show tonight at the Ace uh, Hotel in Los Angeles. Yeah, we're doing here. a live show tonight at the uh, Ace Hotel, which is an amazing venue. I think you guys have done something there. Yeah. It's a great venue. Um, we got Adam McKay, the legendary Adam McKay, head SNL writer, co-founder of Funny or Die, Anchorman, Talladega Nights, and then uh, he's on The Big Short and Vice. And part of this originated in a dinner I had with Adam where like, he... It was like after a screening of Vice in which like he spent much of the dinner haranguing me about not covering climate enough. And I was like, dude, make a climate movie. Like, what? Right. <laughs> I cover a lot of climate. Like, why are you? But yeah, you have some pull. He, he, is, he is really obsessed with climate and also thinking about how do you represent the climate crisis as film, art, TV. And the other guest is a guy named Omar Al-Khad, an incredible guy who was born in Cairo, lived in uh, UAE, and then he grew up in Canada when he was 16, and he was a war correspondent covering the war on terror for 10 years and wrote this novel called American War, which is set in this sort of dystopic future America after climate change and the banning of fossil fuels and a second civil war. And we're going to just talk about, like, how do we think about, talk about, represent as a cultural phenomenon the central crisis of our times, which is a very hard thing to kind of get your arms around and isn't being represented, I think, it's fair to say. Yeah. Like, corollary to the level of import it has well speaking of that i thought one of your most fascinating recent episodes is you talked to you interviewed ted cruz yeah. in texas your mentor and uh and <laughs> your you political guys mentor and i thought it was first of all that was a fascinating conversation i did think like you know a lot of people would be like why are you interviewing ted cruz for but it's like he 
it was a, it was an interesting conversation. Good for him for totally sitting with you in front of a crowd that was uh, very progressive, and like having a generally a good faith discussion with you about all these issues. But I do think Ted Cruz on climate change, man. That was wild. I, I expected him, you know, Mitt Romney put out this climate thing the other day. Yeah. Like, there's a way to just be like, yes, this is what the science says and the world, world, world is getting warmer. And then there's a lot of yada, yada, yadaing you can do after that because it's such a hard problem. Well, but China and India, but we shouldn't. But also there's all these jobs in natural gas. And what are we going to tell those people? You can do all that. But he went with the like circa 2005 Inhofe with a snowball hmm. on the floor of the Senate. Like, oh, but the satellite data is incomplete. And actually, there's we're, we're gaining ice. And like he was hitting me with all these sort of like tropes of denialism, which I am just, just surprised to hear um, in 2019, because it's just like I said afterwards on Twitter, I was like, let's make a bet donated to the, you know, charity of your choice of will there be more record highs or record lows in Texas in the year 2020? Let's just bet on that. Are going to be more record high or record lows in Texas in 2020? Actually, let's make that bet for 2021 and 2022 and 2023. Like, yeah. what are we doing here? Like, if thought, we, it's it's clearly. I, I thought it was fascinating when you said, okay, so why are all these scientists and everyone all getting together to try to invent this conspiracy of, of, of global warming and climate change, you know? And he, he said that from a political angle, and I imagine a lot of conservatives think this. They do. That... What this is about is a lot of the solutions or most of the solutions to climate change involve the government. And this is basically a backdoor way yeah. for liberals and progressives to get what they to, want to anyway. have a socialist takeover yep. of government using climate as the fig leaf, which yep. I was like, wow. But oh, you know what? That makes sense for all of them. Oh, to that's think. a completely widespread view. And to give it a little bit of credit, like it's not it's not a crazy view. It's a crazy view if you think that's what. Like th that's why the scientists are doing it. Right, like, particularly yeah. if you've ever like met a climate scientist, is like, you know, like oh, I've been tracking the latitude of where butterflies mate in Br England for thirty-two years of my life, and then I looked at the data and like, oh, it turns out they're mating higher and higher, like lower and lower on the on the map because of you know the change in climate, and it's like. That's not a person who's involved in some yeah. crazy like scheme to you know like that's a person who's like literally went into it for the butterfly. How much does Soros pay you? Yeah, well, it's the same conspiratorial <laughs> mindset that they think that all Demo Democrats support immigration reform because we want to register millions more right, right. people of color yeah. in this country so that we can win. Imagine it, it, if Democrats it, a lot of it were so political. I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it goes back to what you were saying too about the cultural impact of stories about climate change because I think one of the challenges, and I think you know people say that does you. you to talk about climate change more, talk about climate change more. But I, and, I, and I do think we all should be talking about it more. But one of the challenges is you say to yourself, who is getting this information? Because there's the consumers of the, of the kind of content that talks about the importance of tackling climate change that is reaching people that already understand that right, and right, want to right. do something and aren't sure how to get the political system to change. And then there are Ted Cruz and all the people that support Ted Cruz that we need to figure out how to... Uh, change their thinking about this and their behavior about this. Although I will say this. I mean, a lot of that change has really happened. I think partly it's just because of what's happened on the the face of the earth. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> but it's it's been two things to me. It's been the fact that like the signal has emerged from the noise and the data to, to the extent that people feel it and see it in their daily lives. I mean, I was in, my wife and I, both turned 40 this year. We took a little like trip to Paris and we went to the Loire Valley like an hour and a half outside Paris where they've been growing, they've been, had wine and grapes for a thousand years. And it's like, these people, this is all they do. This is all they think about for a thousand years. And they're like, 
yes, the it, it's changing and like this is what's happening. We have to start planting new grapes. They're making a joke about like how everybody's grapes are gonna like move up one tier. So like we're gonna start growing what Southern Spain was growing, and then like England's gonna start making wine because like they're gonna be warm enough. And it's like it's just there. Like yeah. the people that deal with the the earth every day like see it. So there's that, and then there's also, I think, the activism of the movement has been so profound and powerful that, like, the persuasion question to me is almost a kind of distant third to those two in terms of mobilizing the political constituency you want. But it was still shocking to me in that Ted Cruz conversation. I was genuinely surprised that that was the rhetorical route that he was yeah, taking. Yeah, still arguing about the data. Yeah. Um, all right, everyone. Uh, thank you, Chris, for joining thank us. Thank you. That was and great. Everyone, go check out why is this happening. Uh, if you're in LA and you hear this pod, come tonight. There's yeah, still a few tonight. tickets left. Yeah, Perfect. come by the Ace Theater. It'll be uh, I think seven thirty. Seven thirty. Come by. Buy, buy a ticket at the box office. All right. And when we come back, we'll have uh, Tommy and Ben's interview with uh, Susan Rice. You can live out your Master Chef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Ah, is there a door behind all those spiders? It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. Ah, this is perfect. Relax. You booked a Verbo. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Ben and I are honored to have our guest here today, Ambassador Susan Rice. She's Obama's former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. She was the National Security Advisor, and she is the author of a fantastic new book called Tough Love. Everyone who's listening is going to buy it. Susan, great to have you here. And she was my boss. Well, both of our come bosses. on, yeah, man. Yeah, both of our bosses, yeah. Uh, it's great to be with you guys. I want to separate this into pieces, right? Because there's Benghazi, the incident that happened. Uh, the terrorist a, attack. A horrific terrorist attack that tragically killed Chris Stevens, Sean Smith, Glenn Doherty, and Tyrone Woods, right? And there was, I think, uh, a pretty well-documented series of investigations into what happened that day. Uh, Eight so the, investigations by yes, Congress. But la- a, a lack of security. You know, there are a lot of things that... I think, you know, were important and real and deserved reckoning, right? No one here worked on any of those things, right? You were at the United Nations at the time. We were in the White House. We just, none of us did security. Then there's hashtag Benghazi, which is the right-wing fever dream, uh, the swampy soup of bullshit cooked up by Fox News that decided to make you the target of all their attacks, all their animosity, all their cruelty. And reading this book again it was really, it was hard. It was hard to read those chapters. It, like hard for me having been feeling like, one, uh, we were all there in this too. But you, like, it was hard for us watching you in the barrel as much as you were in the barrel. We were in the barrel too, right? All of us trying to like deal with this bullshit. But like you were attacked so personally. And also knowing that you felt like you were not 
sufficiently supported by the White House team. Like the only person who was getting your back on a regular basis for a while was Barack Obama. And like, I just think, I don't know. It's Benghazi, hashtag Benghazi is a parable about the madness that we're now seeing all day, every right. day from yeah. the Trump administration. Yeah, and this is why it's important cru- to read because you yeah. have to understand Benghazi to understand Trump. Right, yeah. because Lindsey Graham isn't just a piece of shit now. He's Lind- been a piece of shit. Lindsey yeah. Graham. Was- I said it. I said it. Yeah. Damn yeah. it. Finally. Yeah. He was, He's a piece of shit. Yeah. He's lying, lying, yeah, lying, lying, and raising money off of the death of four Americans. Yeah. So anyway, that's my little speech. It was, it was just... It made me so infuriated. Well, to read I, it. and I guess the other, I mean, one way to enter this conversation too is, is one of the things that's interesting in your book is, okay, so, you know, I was the guy who called you, right? And said, I mean, I still remember this, like, Jen Palmer calls me into the press secretary's office, like, hey, we really need someone out on the Sunday shows, right? And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, why? Know? We're dealing, <laughs> the world is on fire, you know, like, literally, there's, because of this video, like I'll say that, you know, there the are protests, Muslim videos. There are violent yeah. anti Muslim videos. There are violent protests. There's not just Benghazi's happened, they're all over the Muslim world. And we're all super busy. And they're like, well, but it looks like the world is on fire and we need somebody out there to kind of give a steady message. And also, Bibi Netanyahu, who's booking himself on Sunday shows, preparing to attack our Iran policy. So we, we anticipated that we were going to have to deal with that. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll reach out to Hillary and, you know, <laughs> yeah. that that didn't happen. Um, but but and, let's look because we we've talked about this. We haven't talked about it yeah. much depth. So you called me first after you had already reached out to Hillary. Yeah, and you said we've asked Secretary Clinton if she'll go on the shows. Yeah. We haven't heard back yet. But in case she won't, would you be willing to do it? And that was the like, first call. It's like yeah. four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, and it's on like. Friday. Friday. It's yeah, Friday. So it's close to the day. It's Friday. And that Friday is the day that everything is burning in the Middle East because Friday prayers right. are the days that people protest. And so literally, Tom and I have a, a split screen on in our office that shows like there are people torching a Hardee's in Lebanon, black flags raised over our embassy in Tunisia where people were killed. Um, the, the, the perimeter of our embassy being breached in Khartoum. I mean, it is yeah, mass scary. chaos. Really so scary. I say to you why, you know, when you call me back a couple hours later and said, Hillary said, no, you know, w- would you do it? I said, well, what is, why did she say no? And you said, well, you know, I think they're... She's tired. Or, yeah, yeah tired. I, I, been a yeah, rough week. Yeah. What I should have asked was, did you ask Donilon? So I did. Um, so... Uh, the I, National Security Advisor. Yeah, I kind of, but I, knowing, you know, look, Tom is great guy like his favorite thing to do wasn't necessarily to be he hated doing press. in front of the cameras and, and interviews so i remember kind of doing going, tv interviews like going into his office it, it, and beginning he doesn't seem to so reluctant his. now <laughs> well none of them are now it's, it's very weird seeing john brennan do an hour of 1 p.m That's cable true. on Look, msnbc actually, this you know what thank you for saying that because i'm gonna get a little thing off my chest too which is like i because i always <laughs> said to go out on the worst stuff you know in the you know it's like oh we need someone to talk about syria like ben can you do these like five cable hits you know and all these guys are now like Brennan and Donalyn and you know. I feel uh, like we're 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 a little down the rabbit hole, but like yeah, 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 yeah. Let's yeah. just talk about this though. So yeah. like, but this is something that is uniquely our conversation. Yeah, but, so, so Tom says no. Please, so then, God. so then you you said to me, um, okay, I'll do this if you do my prep. Is what I remember, right? And so I think what's important for people to get is to us this is like because the reason it's important to say this is to the right to the hashtag Benghazi. We then set about. Between Friday evening and Sunday morning, a scheme cre- creating an entire conspiracy theory. You know, right. like literally, if you if you to try to understand what what Lindsey Graham 
and Mike Pompeo and all these these lunatics like think it said we invented the, this the video didn't even exist and we invented it and we somehow got the entire US government to agree to be a part of this conspiracy theory and we somehow orchestrated the CIA writing talking points and when in fact what happened is we asked the CIA hey can you give us the latest points on what you think happened and they were doing that anyway for Congress uh, so they sent that to you I took our press guidance which is what Jay Carney the White House press secretary used like Pulled, on, other issues, into, on other issues. On other issues. Dropped it into a memo, sent it to you. I remember we did one phone call on like a Saturday afternoon where we went After through these questions. After my football game at Ohio State. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I remember I was in the parking lot of a, of a liquor store. I was in the airport at Columbus, Yeah, Ohio. I mean, this is, so this is not. my a, kids running around wondering what the <laughs> yeah. hell I'm doing So we were very phone. focused so this is not a, on the conspiracy, the is, yeah. This is, and the reason it's worth reading this part of the, of the, the book, and these are not like, we were going about our lives dealing with all kinds of stuff, multitasking 10 things at a time and just having to deal with the fact that you have to go on these Sunday shows, you above all. And and yet that has become like a creation story of some conspiracy theory. Well, my mother was right. That's the moral yeah. of the story. Listen she to your was. mother. Because after you called me and I said, you know, reluctantly, I was taking my kids to Ohio State. Yeah. Uh, for this football game. But, you know, if nobody else will do it and you're asking me to do it as the White House, I'll do it. And my thinking was, you know, we're a team. We had a really bad week. I've been asked to play a role. I thought I could play it and I agreed to do it. So I get to my mother's house who just had her fourth or fifth cancer surgery and was just coming off of a stroke. And she asked me, so what are you doing this weekend? I said, well, I'm taking the kids to Ohio State and then I've agreed to, to go on all the Sunday shows. And she's like, what? Why? And I said, you know, I explained the whole thing of how you yeah. asked me. And she said, I smell a rat. Where's Hillary? Why are you doing this? <laughs> I was like, come on, Mom. Don't be ridiculous. I've done mother. this before. Yeah, it'll be fine. And, of course, it wasn't. So, no. yes, always listen to your mother. Yeah. But she had the intuition that I suspect uh, others had uh, – however tired or bad weeks they'd had, that, you know, whoever's going to be out in the middle of a political campaign or any other hot crisis and is trying to provide the best current information, which inevitably will change, mm -hmm. is going to be targeted. Right. And, and not just for the message, but the messenger, him or herself. And that's what happened to me. And my mom perceived a risk that I didn't fully perceived because I wasn't thinking about myself. Right. Yeah. You're, so th one of the hardest things to read was after you left the White House, you had a friend who worked for Fox and you asked that individual. I mean, so much of this Benghazi nonsense was cooked up in Fox News. In, in, in hindsight, it's even more insane to me that people yeah. listen to Sean Hannity <laughs> and let him create a narrative yeah. given that he lives in an alternative universe. But this <laughs> Fox producer told you when you asked, how did I, Susan Rice, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., know oversight role over the embassy or the consulate in, in Benghazi or embassy security generally? How did I become the villain? And he said, individuals make great villains. Right. Did How, how did you receive that information? Well, it was really, it was fascinating, yeah. you know, to have an inside perspective on how Fox operates. So he was even more, you know, forthcoming than that. He said, you know, look, Fox has this very deep bond with its viewers mm -hmm. and it knows how to energize and rile up its viewers and making them angry is how they get ratings. And a way to make them angry is to create villains that they can target and, you know, and vilify. And 
you always need fresh villains. And, you know, the, the, he explained how the original Fox villain was, in fact, Bill Clinton. Hmm. And then Barney Frank and some others. And, you know, we were sort of yeah, was, new was, iterations. Yeah, as a JV villain. And, yeah. and Hillary, of course, became a major Fox villain. Yeah. But uh, I had given them all the wherewithal, he explained, to be villainized because I'd given them five different sets of video on these shows. Right. And they could loop them and they could turn me into a new villain. And now on Fox, many years later, they just need to say my name. And it's like, you know, like people start twitching. It's, <laughs> it's like an automatic, you know, yeah. trigger point. So it was fascinating to learn from that person's point of view how they engage their viewers and now you can see it playing out and it's Mm -hmm. you know trump is the master of it he makes people angry every day how how cool is it to see mike pompeo and trey gowdy two of the most vicious aggressive benghazi conspiracy theorists who demanded oversight all day every day now helping trump cover up his crimes it's really rich yeah pompeo in particular uh yeah pompeo in particular one of the things so you write about in this book, one of the things I was fascinated by was you kind of grew up in this Washington that no longer exists where, you know, people were friends across political persuasions and there was this kind of, you know, civility, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, You know, the caricature of you is this, you know, from Fox is you're this kind of... Hot-headed partisan. Obstinate, hot-headed, you know, partisan person. When actually I always, you're very warm and and generous and you look out for the people around you including me even though i asked you to go on the sunday shows um uh, and but you've also i've I've noticed you've been able to work with people who uh you disagree with very strongly one of the more interesting things in your book in terms of characters and diplomacy is churkin the russian ambassador of the united nations you know you didn't we didn't clash with russia in the first term quite as hard as in the second term obviously when you had ukraine and uh but you know they're they're still on the other side of most issues or a lot of issues at the un how did you how do you set about building a relationship with uh you know someone who's an adversary but you have to make a partner on some things and you have to be able to agree very you know very stridently but still not have that you know, screw up a diplomatic relationship. What, just talk about that relationship you built with Churkin um, and, and, and how that was both personal and, and also allowed you to get things done. Well, by the time I got to the UN as ambassador, Churkin had been there five years already. And he was sort of a legend. Uh, he understood how the system worked. He knew all the tricks of the trade. He knew all the other ambassadors. He was uh, very smart and very charming and very combative. You know, he could be a complete asshole. Uh, or he could be you know, a fun person to hang out with on Saturday night. And I think what began between us when uh, I got there and realized that you know I was either going to allow somebody like a Churkin to bully and intimidate me or I was going to uh, do as my father always taught me, which was not take crap off of anybody. <laughs> uh, you know, This was a classic case where I had to be assertive from the very beginning and let him know that I could give it back to him as well as he could dish it. And I wasn't going to be intimidated by by him. And by the way, I could be as funny as he was too. And, you know, like there are two kinds of bullies, right? They're they're the ones that are really insecure and find people who push back uh, that much more intimidating. I put Holbrook in that category. Yeah. And then there are the Churkins who actually say, okay, I get this. She's, she's, she and I are on the same page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I respect her. 
And, you know, and then it came to be, and I like her. We liked each other. We had a good personal relationship, even as we fought like cats and dogs. And even as, you know, I relate a story in there about how he um, tries to expel my son, Jake, from a security council in behind closed door <laughs> meeting where staff and other you know right. people can participate. Uh, and he was just sitting there listening because he loved just absorbed everything like a sponge at the U.N. when he ever he could get up there. And so finally, Churkin tries to break up the meeting and saying, you know, we're, I'm not going to allow this young person to be in here. So we take it out into the hallway. Jake's standing with me and Churkin's yelling at me going, why do you allow your child to watch Security Council debates? I'm like, why not? It's a learning experience. It's the international community. What's the problem? He goes, do you let your kid watch pornography? <laughs> I said, no. And he's like, well, why the hell do you let him watch the, these debates? Yeah. I was like, okay. And so that was like, we were screaming at each other, red faced. Um, and that was the way we fought. Yeah. You know, uh, but also then we could just, you know, he and his wife and, and, and me and my husband Ian go out for dinner and have a wonderful time and laugh and joke. So w- the point is that where you're dealing with people who are multifaceted, as yeah. he is or was, sadly he's passed, um, you know, he's smart. He's working for his country. I'm working for my country. Mm-hmm. We got to get along and work together on some things. We're going to fight like cats and dogs on other things. But, you know, he's a human being. Yeah. yeah. And taking the time to understand him as an individual and what animates him and, and moves him is how I think you, you, you have to deal with people that you're working with, whether you're, they're, you're on the same side or the opposite side. Mm-hmm, yeah. And taking it back to what you said about my upbringing, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., born in the mid-60s, grew up in the 70s and 80s, went to schools with children who were the, the sons and daughters of the elite, people who were members of Congress and ambassadors and all of that stuff. But it was bipartisan. And my, one of my very closest friends growing up was the daughter of a Republican senator from Tennessee. And, you know, in, in my cohort were the daughters or the, and the sons of people who served in the Nixon administration and went to jail for Watergate. Hmm. And this was a time when members of Congress brought their families to Washington and lived there. People knew each other as human beings. And it's really hard to demonize and hate people. Yeah. When you actually know them as human beings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's what we've lost. And it's what I argue we really need to try to get back. In 2018, you toyed with the idea of running for the U.S. Senate uh, against Susan Collins in Maine, who, by the way, was particularly annoying during uh, the, the period of time ben- Benghazi to when you decided not to uh, be a candidate for the Secretary of State job. Um, you ended up not running. But I was hoping you could sort of tell us a little bit about why and what your thoughts are about, I don't know, any other future government service. Well, I impulsively uh, tweeted from the Phoenix airport as I was <laughs> about to get on a cross-country flight um, that I would, you know, some uh, Jen Psaki tweeted, who's going to run against Susan Collins? And somehow my fingers hit my iPhone and, and typed two letters, M-E. <laughs> and... I really I don't know what it you know what made me do that, uh, except that I'd been watching Susan Collins on the television at, in the Phoenix airport uh, declare her vote for Brett Kavanaugh, which mm-hmm. was in a long list I think of betrayals of the people of Maine and the United, United States of America, her yeah. most egregious, uh, and 
I've long had family ties in Maine and I have a home in Maine and I love the state, but uh, I thought about it quite seriously because I forced myself to by having that impulsive moment. And I consulted with my family and I consulted with folks who knew Maine politics very well. And at the end of the day, um, I decided that this was not the time for me for very personal reasons. My daughter is a junior in high school. She's our last child at home. Our son is already in college. And I had spent eight years away from my kids. Yeah. You know, whether I was living in New York and they were in Washington when I was UN ambassador or when I was national security advisor and living under the same roof but seeing them very infrequently. I did not want to up either uproot my daughter and pull her out of high school at that critical point or leave her again. Yeah. Uh, and so at the end of the day, of, of all the thing, all the factors, that was the most important one. And you know, causing me and my husband to agree that this was not the right time. Yeah, uh, the book. So future, I don't know. We'll see. Future, yeah. TBD. I like that. That, that leave us hanging. Well, this book, the book is amazing. The book's Susan. fantastic. I mean, you've always been just such a big personality with such immense experience and kind of caring about the right things for the country and having compassion for the people around you. And it's all in this book. I mean, yeah. the history of your family is like a. For me, also, was kind of a history of a certain African-American experience in this country, the history of your government service. You'll learn about Africa. You'll learn how the State Department works. You'll learn also what it's like to become a young mother, a woman in a man's field, unfortunately, although that's changing over time. And, of course, our administration. So people should really check it out. Yeah. Um, learn who Susan gave the middle finger. Learn yes. who the Furies are. Yeah. All kinds of uh, cliffhangers here at the end of this interview. It's a great book. Ambassador Susan Rice, wonderful to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you both. Appreciate you, Tommy and Ben. Thanks to Susan Rice uh, for joining us, and thank you to Chris Hayes, and uh, we will see you guys on Thursday. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Conian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.